We will be reading from Exodus 18. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. And the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer. For he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped in the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law, Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So when Moses' Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? Then Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me and inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and the other, and I make known the statutes of God and his law. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The things that you do the things that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this, is, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God and the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes of the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk, and the work, and, and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they shall themselves judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure all 
and all the people will go will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded his voice, voice of his father father in law, and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, and made the made them heads over over the people. Rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard causes they brought to Moses, but they judged every small cause themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and went his way to his own land. You may be seated. Good morning. <clears throat> this text, Exodus 17, was uh, something that uh, Steve and I had talked about, read uh, earlier in the week, and uh, it was Steve's plan to preach on that this morning. But he is, for those that may not know, I think most of us know that that uh, he came down with something this week and and uh, was still pretty pretty low and uh, did not want to expose anybody. So we uh, and standing here uh, uh, to preach today, I'm. I'm I'm subbing, but I rejoice in this text and in the purpose of it, and uh, would desire your your prayers as we uh, endeavor to speak His Word and and uh, encourage and exhort us to uh, to act on it. That's the main point in looking at His words that we may learn of His ways and then walk in them. So join me in prayer, please. Father, do just to lift up a prayer for our brother Steve that you would encourage him and strengthen him today. Raise him up. Ask in Jesus' name. We also ask that you would meet with us today. May your presence be here in such a way that we notice and acknowledge that you are Lord over us. We thank you for your words teaching that you are sovereign over all as we've heard more of that this morning from Mark as he shared the things he did. But Lord, you are not only just sovereign over all, you have because of your great act of love and mercy to us, you have purchased us by your blood for yourself and you are head over your church. And I pray that we would look to you and respond to you on the basis of that relationship. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace toward us. Pray for your grace to come to us today as we look into your word, that we may learn of you and be encouraged and taught and strengthened to walk in your ways. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, 
as we took a diversion from our ongoing text that to, to look at aspects of our, uh, our civil government here and our, its place in relation to a sovereign Lord of the universe and our place in regard to our submission to him and as, as Romans 13 and other texts taught, uh, our submission to the Lord by submitting to his delegated authorities. So I just want to keep that context in mind. That God who has all authority and rules over all, he delegates this authority in the world and holds those authorities accountable. And that our primary responsibility to God regarding those delegated authorities that he places over us is to submit to them and pray for them. Again, those Romans 13, 1 through 7, and 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8 that we, we looked at, and many other passages that Steve brought out, but those, those two were the ones that we read last week. So this week we want to consider some additional responsibilities we have in this nation. On the one hand, all nations are under his authority, regardless of the government regardless of its structure, ruler over all, even a, a, a harsh dictator king such as Nebuchadnezzar found out just how much that rulership exists and extends in its power, as he confessed, the power to humble those who walk in pride. But in this nation, we know somewhat of its founding we often hear, even today in the election cycle, uh, the phrase or something like it, we're founded on Judeo-Christian principles. This is true. It may be worth uh, at least touching upon some more specific things in regard to the government structure, in regard to the delegation of authority under God. We have that motto that appears in our our money and so forth, but I think we know that uh, that is in jeopardy in terms of it's actually walking out. So we will find that these are the, the responsibilities that we have as citizens of this country, that they're not extra-biblical responsibilities, things made up by men, but rather they are responsibilities that God intends for us to have, to be carried out as all things, with faith in him and wisdom from him where do we find that wisdom it is found in the same source to which our forefathers who founded the nation resorted when they carefully and prayerfully sought the wisdom of god for the establishing of our government system and constitution now this the, the mention of our government system and constitution on this message we're not going to dwell very long on this. <laughs> and it's not to highlight and, you know, be lifted up in pride, which will bring what? If we do that, God continues to raise up and take down according to his wisdom. And when we are lifted up in pride, he is able, he is well able to take down this country as he did many others in the past. We need to walk humbly before him. 
But we do want to recognize God's action in, this, in the establishment of our country. There's an interesting verse in Isaiah, chapter 33, verse 22. Not so much concerned with the larger context. You, you're welcome to look at that. But it's, it's almost a parenthetical kind of expression, and some translations show it that way. But it says this, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Isn't that interesting? What do we know about our three co-equal branches of government? Right there it is. Judicial, legislative, executive. And the Lord is all that to us. All of us. So he works through all governments to accomplish his will in these aspects. Regardless of what country or what nation we might live in, God's people, the church now bought by the precious blood of Christ, needs to relate to him all these ways. Because he executes his government in the sphere of the church as well as civil government. And we'll mention some of this more later. So I, I don't know whether the Founding Fathers extracted the concept of our system of three co-equal branches of government directly from this verse in Isaiah. But this verse and all of Scripture ought to motivate us to respect and appreciate our form of government. It is, at some level, an attempt to align with God's plan. That's never a bad thing. We should be motivated to fulfill our duty to acknowledge the authority of God in the various delegated authorities within our civil government. And as Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2 would teach, honoring, obeying, submitting, and praying for But the fact that our system of government also gives us the right and privilege to vote for these delegated authorities under God, that should further motivate us to learn from God how to carry out this right and privilege. If if it's his will to give give this to us, this right and privilege to vote, and he, as sovereign ruler of the universe, did that not come from his hand? Then consider uh, Luke ten twenty seven says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. There's our answer of how to carry it out. All things are to be carried out because all things hang on those two commands. So we should carry out the right and privilege of voting, motivated by faith, everything through, motivated through our faith, but also love toward God and love for our fellow man. The passage we are considering today, Exodus 18, which we just heard read, offers wise counsel in how to carry it out. We will not be considering who to vote for, because the Word of God does not tell us who to vote for. But the Word does instruct us as to how we should vote and gives us reason to see that it is a sacred duty. 
Just looking at Exodus 18 then, and just briefly, the, the context, the larger context of this chapter. Previous to it is the people of God uh, complaining at, and what ended up being named Masa and Meribah. You might recall that that's been in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, the references to this time. But then it followed Amalek coming and attacking in a very ruthless, cowardly way, attacking the, 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 the sick, the stragglers at the end as they began to move. And where they ended up coming, they, they, just, they were right around this time, the, the mountain of God. <clears throat> and so Amalek, they had fought Amalek. That's when Moses went up on the mountain. He needed the help of Aaron and Hur to raise up his hands for the victory to happen. So it's, it's interesting here. We have a, a contrast in heathen response. On the one hand, Amalek representing just the, the, the ruthless uh, antagonistic to the maximum against the people of God. And then Jethro, who's essentially pagan. Uh, you know, some, maybe some developing knowledge about God, but you can see from the way that he lives and the way that he talks and the way that he acts, the way that he thinks, he is open to learning about this God who wrought this great deliverance. Instead of being angry about it and attacking, he's He's thoughtful and kind. Immediately following this is the giving of the law, the mountain where Moses is called up to the flaming mountain and is given to tablets. Interesting to note, isn't it, that in this chapter it talks about Moses ministering to the people uh, as, as judge and teaching them the law. This is prior to the giving of the tablets. The Lord is already in communication with his people, passing up, passing on his his will to them. He wants us to know. So, uh, just briefly then, uh, looking at uh, a section of scripture there in in, uh, Exodus 18, verses 13 through 18, just to summarize it, that Moses sat to judge from morning to evening, and when it talks about sitting, that's, that's really, it's talking about judging. That's what they did. That's how it was represented then. And, and by the way, this is you know, testimony of the word as they were coming out of Egypt. 600,000 men, plus many large families, as we know from the text. That's one of the problems that they had with them is the the uh, tremendous growth they had. So we're, we're talking about several million people and one guy <laughs> sitting to judge everything that can possibly happen in a people that already showed themselves to be com- complainers. And so then Jethro notices this and said, you know, it's interesting, he asks, what what is this you're doing for the people? It's a, you know he's disturbed by it, and he's going to give counsel about it, but he, he asks the question. He gives, gives Moses an opportunity to talk about it. 
But he also raises the issue, the question of why doing this alone? So Moses says that people come, they inquire of God, and I judge and make known God's laws. And then Jethro says, this is not good. It's too much for one person. Both you and the people will wear yourselves out. That would be happening. A lot of people would probably stand from morning to evening and still not get their case heard day after day. So Jethro's counsel then in in, uh, verses 19 through 23. And note he's endeavoring to give wise counsel and, and presents it in such a way it's basically saying, let God confirm and direct by his presence. He's seen enough now already that Moses hears from God. <laughs> He's just learning about this. So he says, stand before God, bring the difficulties to him, teach God's laws, show the way to walk them out. So in saying that, he's, he's confirmed Moses' work and purpose He hasn't, you know, been harsh with that. He hasn't stepped on it. But his his wise counsel is to share the burden by delegating authority to accomplish the purpose together. The result, he suggests, is that you will be able to endure and there will be order and peace. Do you, in those thoughts, you make a connection back to... uh, uh, Romans 13 and 1 Timothy 2. One of the things that we're to pray for, we pray for our leaders, our delegated authorities under God, that there may be peace, tranquility, order. So that, not so that we can have a nice time, but so the gospel can be put forth in, in peace. Though God can can get uh, his message out in intense times, and he does that. But his desire is that many hear and be drawn. There are always some good stories when things are very intense and persecution is hot. But there are also many people who don't hear and are squashed. The Lord's desire is that all would come to repentance. So, though Jethro is a pagan father-in-law, yet he is open to uh, wisdom. God, as a sovereign ruler, uh, often teaches those who will listen sound wisdom. Some have termed this common grace, but we see this happening in him and and he's trying to help Moses in the task even before he fully recognizes what this is all about. And so in verses 24 through 27, Moses heeds and implements Jethro's wise counsel. He chooses able men and points them to positions of authority. So there are positions of authority under Moses who himself was under the authority of God. And it worked well. The burden was now shared and the work was accomplished efficiently. Moses was able to send his father-in-law away in peace. I thought of the Roman centurion who came to Jesus 
and desiring that Jesus would heal his servant. We cared about. And what he said to, to the Lord prompted a response from Jesus that was amazing. Because basically what he said was, you know, you don't need to come to my house. I'm, I'm not worthy that you come. Just say the word. And then he explained the basis on, on why he said that. He said, because I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I tell them, go do this, and they go do it. So what he's indicating is they don't, go, they don't do that just because I said so, but because there's a higher authority. Romans ensuring that it's not supposed to know these things. But here is someone that's listening. No doubt he had heard Jesus speak before. That's why he came. He didn't just, like, like some, come because Jesus fed them. They like getting fed free meals or exciting healings. He saw that Jesus can heal, but he came with this word about authority. This is, this is something that's really at the heart of, of what we're talking about here. To, to look at our responsibility and opportunity to vote in some other context would, would be to really miss the mark. We need to have the same understanding and what Jesus said, great faith. Because in him coming to Jesus for healing and saying that, he was acknowledging that Jesus is under the authority, not of Caesar, but of God. He's acknowledging God and Jesus' direct connection to him. Perhaps he was yet to understand that Jesus was God himself. I have no doubt that he came to recognize that. But that's at play here when Jethro gives this wise counsel to Moses. It's a matter of being under authority. First, under authority. God is the authority. And then everything beneath that is delegated authorities. And we are to submit to them and pray for them. Honor them, obey them, submit and pray as to the Lord. There are many things from this passage to learn. We won't go into the, perhaps there will be another time when we can look at this. There really was quite a bit here in the, the, the larger context. But we want to focus now on verse 21, the specifics of the wise counsel that Moses heeded. Jethro had essentially encouraged him to heed his counsel, but to do so hearing from God. You know, let God confirm this. Evidently Moses did, and it was the Lord's way of bringing this counsel to Moses. Otherwise, where would he get it? Moses was in connection with God. God could have told him, right? But there was no written word. I mean, Moses is writing the first five books. So there's nothing written at this point. 
He can't go to God's word and get wise counsel. He can only go to God. And he's doing that, and he's teaching people God's wisdom, judging according to it. But note, God decided, as sovereign Lord, to bring his father-in-law, not one of the people of God, with that wise counsel. It's a good lesson. It's one that we don't want to just blow by here because the humility of Moses was incredible here. Moses is the one that's lead, that just led the people. Jethro acknowledged the great story of him leading them out of Egypt with, with great power. So he's one guy leading several million people through the desert with miraculous provision and deliverances. And yet Moses carefully listens to his father, father-in-law. One, not of the people of God at this point. It's a good lesson for us. However God chooses to bring his, his word to us, we should be ready to hear. So that's one we, we don't want to go by. So now looking at verse 21 then, the specifics. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of the various groups. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. So the, the able man is talking about, it's immediately followed by these phrases that describe what he means by able. Now grammatically, it may not have to, to be that. You could take that as, as a fourth thing that he says. But if you look at verse 25, just a few verses down, it says, And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads. There's an indication that he understood that's what was meaning, and that's, I think we have reason to believe and to, and to take the text this way, that the word able is a, is a handle on what's being put forth here, then com, there's, there's these specifics under that, that flush that out. That is, men who fear God, men of truth, men who hate covetousness, Moses is a man under authority, under God, and now we'll soon have judges under him. This is about to happen. Those in positions of authority should be able men of this description. Now, this is the people of God, yes, but this is for walking out, uh, being judges over God's people. But this is millions of people. And, and there's, there's a civil society. You can't just say, well, this is God's people. This is different. It's, they're, they're, well, they are a nation. They may be traveling. And they're, they're going from one place to another. But they are a people. And they have to have a government. Some, something to allow them to exist and function together as a society. And God is developing this right now. He's taking it a step at a time. They came out of Egypt being under 
another government and having really none of their own. It was so suppressed. They were greatly beat down. So the Lord is developing this now. And so here are the qualifications for those who would serve in civil government as delegated authorities under God. And at this point, they're, they're un, Moses is under God. They are going to be under Moses. Men who fear God is the first one. I want, to then, I want to now just, in contrast to this, think for a minute about where we're at now in our nation, which was founded upon these godly principles. Where are we at now? What is looked for for qualifications of office? Is fearing God at the top One becomes almost a laughing stock to make mention of it. When we vote, what will we look, what will we look for? Will we be kind of set back on our heels or just mum about this first qualification? Men who fear God? It's the first one here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One who is going to be functioning in such a position under the authority of God needs to be wise according to God's law and and, and ways. Fearing Him is the beginning of that. The second one is men of truth. I want to make a distinction here between someone who, who manages to tell the truth sometimes or most of the time. This is not just talking about speaking words that are not false. I mean, that's a good start. And we don't have very much of that, actually. It seems like, can we acknowledge that, that the, the current election shenanigans includes uh, twisting, the truth? Maybe there's some way of explaining, well, that's, it wasn't exactly false. Is it truth? Is it straightforward? Who, who else do we associate twisting of truth with? Right? The father of lies. Who are we going to follow? The father of lies or the father of lights? in whom is no shadow of turning. We need men who fear that God and walk in that kind of truth, that kind of commitment. We ought to pray that God would bring such leaders. If we don't see them, perhaps we should consider what Isaiah said to the Lord when the Lord appeared to him. First, he said, woe is me, a man of unclean lips, dwelling among people of unclean lips. But God cleansed him. And then he said, when God said, who will go for us? He said, here am I, send me. Consider 
Do we not see not very many who fear God and love the truth? Men of truth, where the truth has gotten on the inside. And though we acknowledge we all stumble in many ways, but we don't do it as a matter of course. And we are humble about it when we find that we have stumbled. This we need to see. We don't hold up some uh, artificial standard of perfection, but a standard of God's righteousness ought to be. And we ought to, in a sense, demand that of our leaders. This is what's happening here in in Exodus, Exodus 18. The counsel from the Lord through Jethro is select people like this. These are the people that will be able to do the job, who will be able to, to, to carry it out under my authority, says the Lord. Men who fear me, men of truth. Hating covetousness, the third one. Isn't it so excused in our day? The, the covetousness, the love of money, the root of all kinds of evil, the downfall of many, led astray, pierced with many sorrows. Live it up for a time, but it's only for a time. That happens in an individual, it also happens in a nation. If we forsake God, if we no longer fear Him, if we're no longer a people of truth, and we love covetousness. Practice it. Let, let it stand. Let it have a place. Oh, maybe we have a smaller place than our neighbor. Should we be considering comparing ourselves with ourselves? We would not be wise to do so. So I just want us to, as we look at these three in particular here, uh, qualifications. This ought to be each of our, for each of us, our desire to fear God, to be a man or woman of truth, to hate covetousness, to not let it have a place. This is what brings in godly authority, godly society, an orderly not just orderly like ducks in a row, but orderly in terms of authority, how we relate to one another, always remembering and always seeing a relation to civil authorities as placed there by God for our good. It's always for our good. I want to bring in here an example In Acts 6, a fairly familiar passage. It's because it's a very significant time in the church, and it's, it's, there's only one like it. So you might recognize this as the time when uh, the seven were chosen and became the, the model for uh, deacons in the church. But remember the the context here is there's the apostles. It's, there, there's some comparison here. The apostles, now there's 12 of them. 
but a pretty large church in Jerusalem. And it gives you appreciation for what Moses was dealing with, really. One man, several million people. Here's 12. I'm not sure how many, 100,000 or a million, but uh, I think Moses was probably a little further in the hole that way. <clears throat> but they were finding that it was too much. They're 12 of them. They're seeking the Lord for his wisdom and we're trying to minister the word. And they can't get it all done. And so some get shorted. He said, certainly feels that way to them. And so what do they do? They delegate responsibility. And they tell them, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now, they don't list so many specifics there. But I think you could see the, the correlation. Good reputation. That would speak to being men of truth and hating covetousness, I would say. Especially when they're going to be putting them over responsibility of handling money and the distribution of huge amounts of food. But especially, and this is to make a special note for here, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. This would not be the case on any, any of these men that they were being asked to put forward if they did not first fear God, the beginning of wisdom. So really, you can see quite a correlation there. And same purpose, to delegate authority so that the work of God may go on unimpeded. And that is what happened. First, they set their hands on them and prayed. And then the word of God spread. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. This is the point of God's beneficent rulership over us. He does good to us always. If we go fear him and go his way, that's the result. But take note that the people... The, the apostles called the assembly and said, you choose men of this kind of character. Here's where we see it a little more directly aligned with our responsibility as citizens. In our case, in our government. The, the system of government set up is you <laughs> choose such men. This is why it ought to be regarded as a sacred duty. If we don't, others will outside the kingdom of God, outside of his, of his grace, blinded by the God of this world. Those people will choose like leaders It behooves us to, to be responsible in the fear of God. 
and to choose individuals who fear God, are men of truth, and hate covetousness. That's the short of it. Our responsibility in voting. I just want to suggest briefly just when having made the connection with with us, our responsibility for voting. I know there's a spectrum of how different ones can can consider voting. I just want you to consider this. In light of the Act 6, what would happen if when the apostles said, you choose seven men among you of good reputation who follow the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we say, no, I don't want to be a part of that. I want to just complain about how it turns out. That wouldn't square with the word, would it? Let's do it not as a drudgery, but plow in hope. Do his will. Dwell in the land. Cultivate faithfulness. Ultimately, we have to let the Lord raise up and take down as he will. But we ought to pray. And we ought to since we're given the opportunity, choose. Do our part in that. Praying that God would work as he is able to, to do in any government. So, looking then at, uh, briefly at uh, Romans 13, just some, this is one of the uh, passages we looked at last week, and I want to just touch upon a few things again. Just by way of reminder, that it starts out saying, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Every, every one of us, every person, is under the authority of God. Sometimes somebody will say, you know, uh, in a political scene, uh, cast aspersions on theocracy. Oh, so-and-so just wants, he wants to introduce a theocracy. According to the word, that's what we have. It's, it's too late. It has always been that way. God is the ruler. That's unchangeable. So uh, that's, a, that's off the table. What we have is in, the, in the world is a theocracy, like it or not. God is in charge. He rules. No authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. And just, just consider that uh, sometimes we've put forward the thought of uh, jurisdiction. I think it's better just look at it just under the government of God, because there's actually four levels. First is every soul. First is self, and then family. There's there's a structure of of God, a way of of God executing His authority. There's each one of us is responsible to him. Each one will give an account. But then there's family. Husband, head of the wife. Children under the authority of the parents. Those are aspects of God's governing. His people. All of us. And there's church. He establishes governing authority there. There's elders and deacons. In society, then, 
we have, that's where we have many different structures of government. From, from, you know, dictatorships, uh, some that are uh, egalitarian in nature. You, you have a group of mullahs in Iran really running the, the show there politically. Uh, we even now have uh, ISIS that's basically trying to establish something else uh, a little different. We have our country. We have uh, Russia. These are just some examples of, of the differences. There can be dictatorships that are secular, dictatorships that are religious in nature. All of them are, un, are under God. But where we are at, this is how we ought to then be praying. First Timothy 2. Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. In, in the time he's writing this, there's a king. So he mentions the king. But he also says all who are in authority. That we may lead a quiet and peace, peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So let's, let's love God and love the, the, his, his ruling over us. It's a beneficial, beneficent rule. He only promises good and only delivers good. It may not, sometimes it's not what we expect. But we have his promise on his authority that it's always the best. Do we believe that? Do we have faith in our God? Then, then that, will, that will be what leads us. That's the basis of our, of our praying and of our submission to God through the authorities that he gives. And so how should you vote? Uh, one, one has said uh, just fairly succinctly that for the person and party and platform that best represents the values of the kingdom of God. Because they are God's ministers. And, and the fact that we have the precious right and privilege to, to uh, take part in that. Let us do so with, with, uh, with fear of God, but with faith and love toward God. Thanking him for the privilege, thanking him for the country that he established, and then I want to, in closing, point to some couple Old Testament scriptures that would lead us to think as God thinks. Jeremiah 29, 7 says, And seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive, and pray to the Lord for it, for in its peace you will have peace. Let it not be that we pray only for peace in a, in a self, selfish, self-centered way. 
But let us pray as we find in Second Chronicles 7.14. And in light of the place of our, our nation is now, we know, we can see where it is headed. It is taking a ever sharper downhill turn. Let us pray for God's peace. And this is the way that we do it as a nation. And we see examples with Daniel. We see examples with Nehemiah. Other Old Testament folk that, that came to God in humility and confession of our own sins and the sins of our fathers as they did. Prayed that same thing. There's our example. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So I'd like to leave you with this thought. Because God is ruler over all, and sets up and takes down his delegated authorities at his will. Our deciding vote in any election is not the one we make in the privacy of a ballot booth. It's the vote we make in the privacy of our prayer closet. Let us carry out our duty at the ballot booth. But let us not forget where the real battle is fought and won. May the Lord help us do our part to repent as a nation and turn back to God. Father, I pray that your word would sink deep into our ears as you once said to your apostles. That we would take to heart. May we ourselves fear you above all others and be men of truth, hating covetousness. Ways that we have strayed, we pray that you would work in our own hearts first and turn us back to you. We pray that you would have mercy yet on this nation by stirring among your people, your people, called by your your name, to humble themselves and pray. For your glory we ask it. Amen.